This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to a special ONS edition of the podcast in paid partnership with Baker Hughes. After a buzzing few days in Stavanger, filled with Elon Musk, energy majors, and even some breakdancing, we're back on terra firma and ready to reflect on the key takeaways from the showcase and uh, helping me tackle some of those questions. We have Andy Barr, Sales Director for Oilfield Equipment Europe at Baker Hughes. Welcome, Andy. Uh, recovered from ONS? Been a busy few days? It's been a busy few days of recovery, yes, but fully recovered, refreshed and ready to go is, uh, again, yeah. Good, good. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I needed more time to recover than you did by the sounds of it. It sounds like you're, you're, you're uh, full of energy, uh, which is great. Um, so we've been on the floor of ONS, uh, had a chance to ask people some of these big questions. And first up, here's what Adam Duffy of FutureOn and Christian Knudsen of IK Group had to say. I think there's a lot of innovation in hardware, um, you know, on the wind side. Uh, I think obviously oil and gas is digital transformation is genuinely I think about 10 years ahead of, of the wind of the wind industry there's a, a lot of really interesting and innovative solutions out there I think the the challenge and the opportunity is integration of all of that into you know I say hybrid maybe isn't the word but uh, complementary workflows workflows that lean on the learnings um, of the of the oil and gas industry which has really driven efficiency through digital transformation and then apply that to these new hybrid energy use cases or you know, low carbon, low emissions uh, use cases, um, really push on efficiency, use technology, use integrated solutions to drive efficiency. Um, that's where you protect ROI. That's where you manage mitigate risk. Um, that's where you, yeah, you reduce waste and, and, and it's just better for cost. It's, it's, it's better for everyone, right? So I think technology is just sitting at the heart of that. I think we will face the challenge we have faced of the last 30 years, and that's the great volatility of the business. We have now a high, high activity level, oil price is high, and we are all working hard. We know that in a few years, that will be the opposite way around, and then people will flew the business, and there will be low oil prices, and then most likely it will come back again. And this volatile is a challenge for everybody that wants to have a stable, normal life. So this hits all people working in the oil and gas business, that you never can plan long term. Some interesting stuff there on the, the volatility of the business uh, and the people challenge too. Uh, maybe to get your thoughts firstly on, on the volatility first, it's always been a cyclical industry, so maybe not a new challenge, but are we getting any better at, uh, at handling it? I, I would say generally we are, but we're going to need to get a lot better. Um, and, I, uh, and I think that, you know, when we talk about the energy transition uh, and the energy mix, I think that what we're what we're all hoping to achieve as an industry is a flattening of the curve of that volatility, right? I think that if you look at things like the gas prices just now and what's happening, particularly in the UK with energy prices, but actually globally with energy prices, we're going to need to expedite a lot of that energy mix to flatten out that volatility that we do see in the energy markets. Hmm. And, and we can talk about the, the people piece too, if we can flatten out that volatility and indeed, you know, branch out into other sectors effectively, will that help us with areas like recruitment, for example, and attracting the, the skills we need? I personally think that, you know, the, the resourcing thing is one of the major challenges that we face as, uh, as an industry um, over the course of the next few years. We need the best talent to 
be in this industry to help us, not just with the volatility, but help us with that energy mix, with expediting that path to energy transition, right? It's a challenge that you need a real mix of experienced heads, people that are born, raised, and have worked all of their lives in the traditional oil and gas markets. And you need a new generation of more tech-savvy, digitally-enabled individuals that want to come into the challenge. I think that we need to address the the the, the issue that the industry is, um, you know, di like dirty or, or, or unappealing to work in. Actually, it's not. It's we're on the cusp, I think, of something that is monumental within the energy industry, right? We can't deny that we need that mix. And I'm going to keep talking about an energy mix. We can't just turn off the, the, the taps, but we do need to have a different or varying different forms of energy in the supply chain that will help with the volatility. But in order to do that, and I see this particularly in some of the, the new segment areas like offshore winds, we need a different skill set. Yes, there's manufacturing, heavy manufacturing. Of course there is. But there's a different skill set required in the innovation side of that. That, again, we need people who can almost multitask. Because for me, it's not just, right, I work in the offshore wind sector. I work in the oil and gas sector of the energy industry. Actually, we need them all to work together. And we need that intertransferability of skills in order to get fixed or floating offshore wind farms tied into oil and gas FPSOs so they can, they can produce less carbon, but still extract hydrocarbons from the ground. And that's what I really talk about in terms of energy mix. In terms of the way that, well, I suppose the way the oil and gas industry historically has been perceived, there's always been this idea of a, a race to second place, particularly new technologies, perhaps with new ways of working. I hope that's a fair assessment. Um, how important is it that we can, you know, I guess this, these digital ways of working, new ways of working more broadly, and indeed bringing in new technologies, how important is that going to be in terms of actually attracting that next set of workers and the, I guess the integrated skill sets that you talk about there? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a, it's a challenge, right? And, you know, to, to, to use your point of race to second, um, it's that's always, I guess, been the case in the traditional oil and gas industry. It's a very risk averse industry. However, I do see that changing. I do see an increasing reliance on the use of digital technologies to do field analysis to assist in technical readiness level. And what I think from our, certainly from our business point of view, is most of our time is spent on requalifying our existing product range for the energy transition area. So if you take the classic example of a, a subsea Christmas tree, where we both extract hydrocarbons and inject things into wells in order to boost production, we still inject things into perforations. So now it's the, the challenge has changed. It's now about what are the long-term effects of carbon reinjection? So you're using the existing technology and you're almost going through a requalification. However, you need to make these things also smaller, more compact, which is exactly the same challenges that we expect that, that we've experienced in the in the in the digital industry, in the communications industry with all of the mobile phone technology, computer technology, microchip technology, existing products requalified 
And that's where we need the innovation. That truly is where we need the, the innovation. We've almost got the suite of core products. You know, Baker Hughes are our, our, our turbines. You know, they've been they've been working on hydrogen or partial hydrogen power for about thirty years now. I've just mentioned our subsea trees have been, uh, you know, have been injecting things into perforations for almost 50 years. It's the, that next step of the challenge of we need to use new skill sets, digital innovation, in order to expedite the use of the, that existing technology into new spaces. And just before we move on to our next uh, speaker from the floor, if you like, I, I, you talked about this kind of integrated energy offering, um, which is clearly something we're looking at in the UK pretty f firmly, uh, Norway uh, over in ONS, certainly. Um, to what extent are you seeing opportunities branch out for the workforce? You talked about integrating oil and gas FPSOs with floating offshore wind, for example. Are you seeing those market opportunities arise in, in a material way at this point? And are, are you seeing opportunities for the workforce to, uh, yeah, branch out with that? So am I seeing opportunities, I guess, uh, to answer the first question? Yes, I am, but they're very early stage, right? So we're seeing this even with the, the consents and license approvals for, 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 for operators, that these new energy transition or environmental considerations as part of the consents are now becoming more and more often that represents a challenge to them because your traditional operator doesn't have the skill set within their organization to, to, to carry out that part of the project. So they are asking for engineering houses and the likes of ourselves to become involved in these projects to help them with that. So again, you go back to the workforce. This isn't the, well, it isn't yet the offshore, you know, field service engineers and technicians. It's more in-house engineering and development about how these products will tie together to do what we need them to do. So absolutely, the, the, there's a market there. I think that we do still have a challenge in, in, in tying that market together. And that for me is where we really need the help of the, the, the regulators and also the governments um, to make sure that you don't need to go through a myriad of supply chain portals if you want to buy an FPSO, if you want to buy a subsea system, if you want to buy a, a floating wind turbine. You shouldn't need to go to three or four supply chain portals in order to do it. You should just be able to go and engage. And that's actually over the course of the uh, the last, I would say, year, where we have, have been spending quite a lot of our time is the supply chain development in these new energy transition areas. So if you take into account what I mentioned before, we've got products that we feel could fit quite easily into energy transition projects, but their supply chain development isn't quite at the stage of your traditional oil and gas developments, and that is the challenge, right? So the immediate term need for workforce is, is actually in the offices, engineering, doing the front end engineering and design reviews for these projects, and then there will be almost a cross training of the installation of this, but we still have installation vessels, offshore technicians who can still do the work that for me is less of a problem. It's just about integrating that into simultaneous operations. Okay. Uh, and as, as we've heard from Andy there, there are uh, clearly some issues around the supply chain as we embark on this energy transition uh, journey. Uh, let's hear what Zara Al-Salman from Baker Hughes speaking in the ONS Young section had to say from the floor. The trend of the oil industry is being unstable for the past few years and supply chain is one of the big challenges that's 
affecting the industry at the moment and it may affect it in the future. So I think the crisis management system needs to be more stabilized uh, to face uh, such a thing in the future. So, but yeah, supply chain, the high, uh, the, the increase in prices and being, to be in a competitor with this prices is also hard. Andy, do you, do you recognize uh, what, what Zara's talking about there? Uh, she's discussing the price points at this particular uh, moment when, well, we are seeing higher oil and, and gas prices. Um, so do you, do you recognize what she's discussing there? Yeah, of course. I mean, look, we, we are a vendor ourselves, right? We, we sell goods, equipment and services to, to customers. And there's been undeniably a volatility in the market right the way through the supply chain. And it is causing issues. Um, it's issues that have taken everybody uh, a long time to kind of understand. Uh, we've seen some some erratic behavior from elements of the supply chain in terms of decreased decreased quote validities, um, pricing validity for even as little as 24 hours when it comes to some of the supply chain. But like with any industry, you adapt to change. Um, there is initial shock. The initial shock drives certain behaviors in the industry and therefore the pricing attached to, to, to the industry, not just from supply chain, but for, for oil and gas prices themselves, which will go up. I would expect them to, to, to flatten out. I'm already seeing, you know, some of the latest indices by the likes of IHS saying that material raw material and, and, and labor inflation is going to flatten out by, by the end of this year, which is great. So I don't expect any change in the geopolitical landscape, to be honest with you. So that's going to continue. However, your supply chain adapts to the nature of the ge ge geopolitical situation, which means that we will see a flattening of the curve and then probably resume activities. Because I think that if you look at it, supply chain is now becoming more understood. I think the operators know far more. If you go back through even all of the, 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 the coronavirus times, operators are far more savvy of understanding their, their, their costs, their OPEX costs, their capital expenditure costs, and their lifting costs attached to all of their, their, their existing and new projects. So when they see these fluctuations in the market, they do take notice of them. However, they do still go through their processes of trying to get these projects online. Well, uh, clearly there's been a lot made of uh, energy majors' profits in recent times. Uh, cl clearly, you know, it's a competitive business and, you know, they'll, they'll want to take off all the, uh, I'm sure the boxes around safety, of course, but perhaps, uh, you know, much can be said about competitive costs as well. Uh, are we seeing th these these huge profits from the energy majors? Is that seeping through broadly to the supply chain yet? Or is, is there a... Is there a lag, I suppose, in terms of, of that coming through? What, what is your view on that? I mean, what I can tell you is it's busy. It's very, very busy. The activity level has picked up exponentially versus, you know, 2020, 2021. Obviously, we expected it. The market expected it. You know, third-party marketing sources expected it as well. Um, does that correlate into, into it seeping through? Well, of course, because in order to perform activities or supply equipment, you need to have contracts awarded or, or purchase orders made. Um, in, in, in terms of profitability, profitability will come with, with the volume. So yes, it is beginning to seep through. And my expectation is, is that as the, as, as the 
as the industry matures a little bit with the ge geopolitical situation, with the oil prices, with supply chain, going back to that point, I think that we're going to see more more activity, more economies of scale, and almost the the, the supply chain settling back into a state of normal. Mm, fantastic, um, and I think maybe just to to talk a little bit about that that volatility piece earlier. Um, when we talk about the opportunities ahead, and, and you said you you saw that you saw that rising, can the supply chain have I guess confidence in invest, particularly in new energies, as you know your your big oil companies are now kind of moving over to uh, renewables. Uh, you mentioned floating offshore wind. Maybe to talk a little bit about the 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 confidence that companies like Baker Hughes will have uh, hearing these announcements and being able to I guess get ready for the opportunity. So at ONS, there were some there were some great discussions about uh, about this discussions about how to finance the energy transition and i found that some aspects of that very very interesting because there is no set way for oil and gas companies so operators that that they're doing that we see the creation of spacs we see divestment of oil and gas portfolio and we see m a activity all of this is great as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think that there is a lot to play uh, in terms of the energy transition. I think it's actually, I go back to the point about energy mix, and I, I, I said that I was gonna keep going back to that. Operators need to realize themselves that they need to, that they need to get into new energy. They need to enter into this space, right? In order to flatten out that curve, in order to in order to offset any potential volatility around the corner with, with, with traditional hydrocarbons, right? The approach that they take, like I've just mentioned, differs. However, their main procurement processes haven't. They still treat these as projects. They still go through the same toll gates as, uh, as any, any traditional development would as well. And therefore, they're still engaging with the supply chain. I go back to my earlier point, though, is, is that there are some elements of that supply chain that they have zero experience in engaging. And in some countries, that supply chain development isn't there either. So they go and ask the regulator, hey, we're going for a floating wind turbine to power or partially power this FPSO. Who do we speak to? And the regulator, that's where we do not yet have that supply chain maturity. And that's where I really see the work that's coming around the corner is, is that we all need, we all know, we all understand that we need to expedite the path to net zero. We need to expedite the energy transition. We also should know that that's going to take time. Every member of my, of the supply chain and Baker Hughes being one part of the supply chain that I speak to understands the challenge ahead. And I've mentioned previously that we've got some of the products that could go tomorrow to go and work in offshore wind farms, but the supply chain development isn't quite ready as of yet. The companies involved in this don't understand some of the, the, the aspects of getting projects down the line, materials on order. And then most importantly, the regulatory environment is still a little bit of a challenge as well when it comes to getting the consents and approvals for these energy transition projects to, to take flight. Are there, sorry, I don't mean to labor the point, but I'm just curious. I mean, are there any particular geographies that you see 
doing any better on that front than than others. Uh, uh, you know, we don't we don't have a bias necessarily to the UK, but I'm just I'm keen to get a sense of how how they're faring at this point. There's so many ambitions going about. It's often a, a, a obviously a bit of a joke in the industry that you know the the first mover in anything and like this is normally Norway, and I think that that's probably accurate when it comes to this. Their their CCUS projects are substantially down the line. Their offshore wind projects are a little bit uh, further ahead. Obviously, then then going into the likes of Denmark for their offshore winds, you know, that's that that's pretty substantial at this space and time. The UK, I think, leads in certain areas. I think that Scotland, for example, was very bold um, to, to do all in all, all in one licensing round. Um, I, I think that that was a great thing to see. I think that what you're now seeing after the excitement of, of Scotland is a realisation of, how do we go about getting these wind these wind farms in this country and up and running? I think that I was at the uh, the economic report uh, business breakfast for the OEK this morning, uh, and they were they were mentioning that in order to meet the commitments by twenty thirty, they need to install uh, one wind turbine a day until twenty thirty. And I can tell you that we're not installing one to wind turbine a day. So this is where the challenge is, right? From the UK perspective is that you have the likes of ourselves. We are ready to go. We are investing our own revenues, our own profits into R&D to requalify some of our products to fit into energy transition or energy mix projects. But the supply chain isn't quite ready. The regulator isn't quite ready, and that's where we, as an industry, I'm not, I'm not, you know, blaming the regulator or, or supply chain at all. We need to help them, and we need to help them by showing them, look, we've got a supply chain development that we've done for over, you know, 30, 40 years within the UKCS, and we can equally adapt that and just move forward as an industry with it. I think that needs to be the immediate focus. Okay, lovely. Uh, and that leads me on to uh, another question from the floor. You know, which technology and innovations are most needed to accelerate the transition to net zero, which we've heard, uh, well, a lot about already. And here's what uh, Kari homeford Verick, MD of Innovation Norway, had to say. I'm working in Innovation Norway, and we work every day with companies with brilliant technology and a lot of good ideas and solutions. So we uh, we think it's it's a broad specter of, uh, of uh, solutions needed. But what, what is the uh, most important is that the companies with this, with this technology and these solutions really understand the customer need. So uh, the most needed is that they take their technology knowledge and really use a lot of time and energy in discussion with potential customers to find out what problem is the most valuable for my customer to solve. It, it sounds, uh, well, I don't want to be or make an oversimplification there, Andy. It does sound a little bit like that collaboration word seeping in there and just sitting down around the table and discussing the problem might just be the way the way forward. Um, what are your reflections on that? One thing that really struck me at ONS, and in fact, it struck me at a lot of the events that I've been attending over the course of the last year, I would say, since everything's opened up, is the amount of cool technology that is out there, right? These small startups, medium-sized startups that have really cool technology that can perform absolutely innumerable tasks. The problem that these guys have is that they need a voice. 
They need a voice to go into the customer. So absolutely it is about that C word, collaboration, right? And it go back to about understanding the supply chain. It's very hard for smaller technology companies to get time with some operators for them to understand their 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 products, where they fit, etc. And obviously operators, if they were to do that with every small to medium-sized enterprise, they would be doing nothing else because there's so many of them. However, you need we need to find some sort of process of pulling all of that together. So you you look at some of these projects moving forward as a solution, or and we need a number of these products and trying to collaborate together. This is exactly what we are trying to do in some areas attached to energy transition, particularly in renewable subsea power. So we have been speaking to some of these technology guys. We go to the stands at these at these uh, at these events we like the technology we see where it can fit into our supply chain uh, and also our technology and then we take them and go and speak to the operator but that is you know collaboration off our own back what we need is the industry itself to be collaborating a little bit more so we take the sum of all the parts of of this technology and, uh, and put them together and it's we focus a lot here on energy transition projects, but the reality is, is that a lot of this technology as well can help in the other big issue, the more near-term issue that we have, which is decarbonisation, that we've got very stringent obligations with the North Sea transition deal here in the UK. And a lot of this technology that certainly I've seen over in ONS can immediately help with that. And again, it goes back to that supply chain development and making sure that we expedite that process. And I think we'll now move on to, well, the third question from the floor. Key actions for industry and policymakers following ONS 2022 and reflections on the conference theme of trust. We'll talk to Andy about that in just a moment. But here's what Anne Myhold, the head of Petroleum Safety Authority in Norway, had to say. Well, I think uh, the uh, main team trust is relevant for us uh, building this transition. I don't think we will manage the transition if we don't have trust in both the technology and the people and the capacity uh, discussion. Uh, we as uh, safety regulators, we are very much into discussing trust. Uh, we have made a film uh, related about the safety model in Norway where trust is the fundament. So I hope that we can have a good discussion on what do we need uh, to, to get the transition uh, smooth and, and uh, with, with quality uh, and then trust and openness is uh, crucial. Andy, lots changing in the sector, security supply, energy transition. Uh, how crucial, though, is it that we can keep that safety piece at the, the pinnacle of the list of priorities whilst all of this is going on in the background? Absolutely crucial. Number one priority, safety. Every single time you see that throughout this this industry, it's an inherently dangerous industry that, that, that I work in. Um, and that is across traditional energy projects and uh, energy transition projects, right? It's heavy manufacturing. It's heavy lifting. It is labor intensive, um, and also there is uh, there is a speed that we need to work at that is quite intense. Um, so, absolutely, that safety not just in performing the operations, but making sure that the people performing the operations are safe and they are okay um, and they're happy. Fantastic. And just one more, if you'll indulge me, we'll have from Dave Thompson, Director of UK Sales at RMI. So 
I don't think it will be a surprise to hear that, uh, from my perspective, and I'm sure thousands of others, um, the geopolitical situation uh, has caused a situation where we're, um, we've obviously been importing a lot of our energy for many years. Uh, we have a huge opportunity with our own domestic energy industry, uh, with oil and gas, uh, certainly around the UK uh, and Norway, uh, to utilize that industry far more than it was. Um, and therefore we're not importing uh, that energy. Um, but also uh, to continue to invest hugely in certainly offshore wind and other renewables. Um, and that, those are the key actions that I see uh, which need to be taken. Seems to reflect uh, broadly what we've discussed today. Uh, Andy, any reflections on, on what we heard from Dave there just lastly? No, I mean, like fully agree with, with, with everything that he said. Um, yeah, go back to it in terms of the energy security and the energy mix, right? Um, when we talk about net importer, yep, currently the UK is uh, a net importer. But I think if if I go by the latest statistics, you know we're gonna we're gonna produce fifty percent of the natural gas in the UK for the UK in twenty twenty two. So there is that element of we can do it, we can do more. I think that one of the main actions for the industry and uh, and policymakers that we need to take into account is how do we simplify the process, right? If we want energy security, if we want energy um, uh, energy transition or a path to, to, to net zero to be expedited, then we need to really look at debottlenecking the regulatory process. Right, this is the biggest action I can see over the course of the next six to twelve months for our for our industry, because what we are likely to see is a mix of traditional and future energy projects all going to the same place all needing to be approved at the same time, all having to be reviewed at the same time. And that is a real challenge. And it's a challenge that we can help with. So I don't expect that challenge to lie squarely with the regulator. I think that actually it goes to operators. It comes down to supply chain, companies like ourselves, to make sure that we are part of that regulatory process. We provide the documentation, we provide the environmental analysis for our equipment, our manufacturing process, our offshore operations, and we make the, the, the elongated process as efficient as we possibly can. Because I think that if you look at all of the potential projects, developments, greenfield spend, OPEX, Brownfield OPEX spend that we've got around the corner going through for the next five years, you see nothing but a regulatory bow wave that we need to overcome. And that that really re resonates with me, that, that, that clip, yeah. Fantastic. And that is it for our ONS podcast. Thank you to Andy for joining me. Please keep your ears open for more Energy Voice Out Loud episodes in your inbox each week and in your streaming platform of choice, tackling the big issues arising from the energy world. For now, I've been Alsa Thomas. Thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. 
If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.